Hi, this is Oz Davis with a special edition of the MacGuffin Report. In this time of social distancing and binge-watching, my MacGuffin partner, Rachel Wong, and myself decided to put together a mini-series on some of our favorite, highly rewatchable movies and, and bingeable series of, of films, thematic series, let's say. We'll be back to our regular episodes of the MacGuffin Report with our third, the indomitable Walter Hong, as soon as this coronavirus quarantine is over. But for now, enjoy the show and enjoy these movies. iconic tune for the 1984 action comedy sci-fi fantasy film about three former parapsychology professors who open up shop as a ghost removal service in New York City. Directed by Ivan Reitman, written by Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis, who also wrote Groundhog Day. This stars Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Dan Aykroyd, and Rick Moranis. So this is classic 80s comedy fodder. I didn't know this, but there's actually a genre called ghost comedy. And this is kind of what Dan Aykroyd was writing this script off of. He really enjoyed this genre, ghost comedy, so he wanted to write his own. It reminds me a lot of Back to the Future, which comes the year after in 1985. There's a lot of techno babble. There's a lo- the love for the underdog, nerd scientist. There's a strong sci-fi streak, lots of fire and explosions. And a huge cult following. Um, the film is a film that I've grown up with. I actually, this last time when I re-reviewed it for this podcast, I watched it with a friend who had never seen it before. So it was fun, you know, watching it alongside fresh eyes. Um, it is scary at times, so I wouldn't necessarily put it in front of the littlest kids. But, you know, the, the the slightly older ones can handle it. Depends on your kid, of course. But it's a little scary at times. I will warn parents. Um, but it's got a lot of heart. Great witty comedy. Um, it might be easily missed, so you should pay attention because Bill Murray is, you know, he's a comedic genius, but it's very subtle. You got to listen to what he's saying. Um, but, yeah, this is a movie that I grew up watching, whether it was my parents having it on or it was on TV or something. I've seen it lots of times, and I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching it. Oz. How old were you when you first saw this? How old was I? Um, yeah. I don't know. It could have. I could have been. I could have been two months old. This came out before I was born. <laughs> right. I, I'm just wondering, <laughs> like, like how old you were, because I'd like to talk about my kids' reactions to this. Oh yeah, um, this sure. Is imminent imminently rewatchable movie and i'm also glad you brought up groundhog day and back to the future you're reading my mind because i'm about to name drop both of those we have been podcasting together for a while now um i think i was my earliest recollection of watching it maybe uh maybe 10 or 12 because i think my parents were very careful especially with me since i'm the first kid and the oldest child in my family they were very careful about what i watched they got a little bit loosey-goosey when my brothers came along but 
they were also, you know, cognizant of, you know, I was probably old enough to watch it at some point when I was like five or six. But my brothers at that point were like one and then like four. So they were probably like, oh, they're too young. So they got a little older. Yeah. And then. Yeah, I feel for you. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, we we always get uh, exposed to the good stuff last. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in terms of age. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I still found it scary, but it didn't stop me from watching it the way, oh, let's say, uh, horror films or even animated kids films like Black Cauldron have like have stopped me. So it's scary, but there are only maybe there are like two two maybe three moments that are jump scary. But they, you know, it it it's over quickly, kind of like a getting your chicken pox shot. So, and and it's balanced out with the humor. It is. It See, is. what was funny is when I heard you talking about this, you said they decide to drop out of academia and become like a ghost removal service, and you said it like it was nothing, right? But but to me, this is always the point with especially superhero movies, but a lot of action adventure movies as well. Is that okay? First of all, you got to realize that what you're doing is pretty inherently silly. Yes. Right. And and how you deal with that silliness is that makes or breaks your movie. And thank God this movie has Bill Murray in it. I'm old enough to have seen this movie on its first run. And I still go back to this movie through everything, through college, through going to Europe, everything. I still come back to this movie at least once a year. And I swear, every single time I come back to this movie, you forget how frickin' funny Bill Murray is. You know, a lot of the other guys, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, you know, they get a lot of good lines. Er Ernie Hudson gets some good lines. You know, all, all the supporting characters get some good bits, right? But every single one of Murray's lines is hilarious. You know, it's at least funny, yes. unto hilarious. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's, I mean, this is him. You know, this is before he's really doing the critically acclaimed stuff. Uh, we'll go through the, the CV in a little bit here on the show, but. This is him almost at the height of his powers. You know, this is him at like his straight up funniest. He's just doing pure humor. And and the the wild thing is is that even though a lot of times in this movie he's a wise ass, he's sadistic, you know, he's pushy with uh Dana the Sigourney Weaver character, he's still charming as hell. He's super charming, yeah. Yeah, so charismatic. I was like, how how do I like this guy so much with and I don't understand his hairline. Those two things don't usually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would actually be a good thing to watch for in Bill Murray movies is watch the hairline. Watch the hairline. Yeah. Slowly watch it recede. That's how you could tell what year the movie was made. <laughs> uh, he's he's had a lot of good movies and you might not be able to place one or two. Right. So the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, I talked about when you uh, first watched this, we showed our daughters. Uh, before they became blasé teenagers, so in their pre-teen years, we showed them, you know, some of the classics, whatnot, from, from you know, Generation X days, right? You know, so, for example, Star Wars, they thought was boring as hell. Raiders was okay. Raiders was pretty good. You know, it was a bit long. Mm -hmm. You know, they couldn't really keep their interest. You know, Aliens, you know, that was pretty good. Lots of, lots of guys shooting stuff. That so would that have been too cool. scary for me as a kid. The, oh, yeah, these two. One of, one, of, one of them, the older one, loves yeah, it. Yeah, I know one of your kids one of can stomach kids. it real well. Yeah, she loves it. And uh, But Ghostbusters, they loved. They loved. Their favorite bit 
in the movie. In fact, your favorite scene in the movie is, and you were talking about, um, you were talking about the jump scares and stuff not being appropriate for kids. There's some blue language and sexy material in here too that I think nowadays you probably couldn't get away with if you're marketing it to this age. Oh yeah, yeah. That's for some reason that that for some reason that just doesn't register for me. <laughs> right. For example, like like the the favorite one for both of them was their. And you guys are not giving me right, the we're blocking the bridges, the roads, yes. Yeah. Okay. What are we going to do? The Ghostbusters are here, Mr. Mayor. Ghostbusters, okay, the Ghostbusters. Hey, where's this Peck? Hey, I am Walter Peck, sir, and I'm prepared to make a full report. These men are consummate snowball artists. They use sense and nerve gases to induce hallucinations. People think they're seeing ghosts. And they call these bozos who conveniently show up to deal with the problem with the fake electronic light show. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. That was their favorite bit when they were young. Oh, I you know, we'll that. have to watch it again. But that's that's one of the few movies that we've shown them. You know, that's old. You know, because normally it's like, oh my god, 20th century. I'm not gonna watch that. That's that they like. You know, mm-hmm. that they'll watch. You know, again, because these characters are funny. The story is good. It's quick enough. You, there's kind of a mystery there. You kind of want to know what's going on. You you want to know about the Twinkie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing I like about this, and you brought it back to the future before, it's not self-conscious. Even though this movie created a franchise, uh, tons of products, you know, the song was everywhere, the logo was everywhere. They soon made a cartoon series out of this. I used to watch the cartoon series. Yeah, the real Ghostbusters? I don't remember what it was called, but their sidekick was Slimer, the little green yeah, guy. Yeah, Slimer was a good guy in it. Which is one of my favorite scenes in this movie when they first discover him and Bill Murray gets slimed. And Come in, Ray. Pinkman! I saw it, I saw it, I saw it! It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. I don't know what is it two minutes is comedic gold right exactly and again and 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 it ends in a scary bit which is immediately balanced with a great throwaway line yes exactly that's one of the great things about that movie even if it is scary for kids it's immediately neutralized by the humor levity right exactly and that's that's what's really missing that slowly disappeared as we came to nowadays, is is that ability to have you know the funny Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie? Everything is so serious now. They 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 forgot that some of this is silly. But the, the thing I wanted to say is that this was a big budget movie. There's big stars in it and everything. Yeah, fifty million dollars I think was the budget. Yeah, which was a big deal in those days. Yeah. But it wasn't like they were conscious about creating a franchise. You know, it's not like Back to the Future. 
because I think with Back to the Future, Zemeckis and the producers behind it had that in the back of their heads. That, oh my God, this is going to be a trilogy. You know, we're going to we're gonna make lots of money. We're going to have products. You know, we're going to have characters. Da, 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 da. Right? But with this movie, that wasn't the goal. You know, they were mm-hmm. just making this one thing. In the end, i got to say that Ghostbusters is probably one of the 20 or so best Hollywood movies in the 1980s. And uh, I think it can be easily recommended to just about anybody and imminently rewatchable. Really a great choice, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. It's also listed, I believe, in IGN's top 100 comedies of all time. Oh, sure. Why not? You know, I, and I wonder, I liked what you said about, you know, this team, this producer team not thinking about making it a franchise. And I wonder if it's because of its origins. Like this film kind of has SNL blood. Um, if you look at any other SNL movies that have come out, they don't come in with this high concept thing thinking we're going to franchise this and make this into a huge thing. Like you look at Wayne's World, which also has a cult following, or you look at what's another SNL movie. Um, I think Hot Rod has SNL blood as oh, well. Blues Brothers. Yes, exactly. Blues Brothers, uh, Night at the Roxbury. This was originally written by Dan Aykroyd for him and his fellow SNL cast member, John Belushi. Um, Belushi, unfortunately, passed away before they were able to film. Um, he was replaced by Bill Murray. Eddie Murphy was also originally meant to be in the cast, but he had a filming conflict with Beverly Hills Cop. Um, he had to he had to pick and he ended up going with Beverly Hills Cop. Well, let, no, let's see. I have one more fun fact. The theme song was actually Billboard number one for three, three weeks in a row. You don't have to tell me. I was there. <laughs> you were there. Uh, but I didn't know this. For my exposure to this song before watching the entire movie was in kindergarten. We had a hol- we had a Halloween parade every year at my elementary school for K through fifth grade. And this would be this and Monster Mash. They would just loop over and over because these were the kid-friendly, like, Halloween songs and maybe Thriller. And we would, like, each class would, like, walk around the schoolyard and everybody else would watch. And we were sitting in the hot California sun watching everybody in their costumes (laughs) and clapping all morning long. Um, Good times. But that was kind of my exposure. Did you know that this this song has a music video? Oh, my God. Did you know this song has a music video? (laughs) So... I, I I was researching uh, the movie and I found this fun. I discovered the fact that there is a music video in existence on Wikipedia because it's got recognizable cameos in it. Oh, yeah. The whole thing's cameo. Yeah. The whole thing is cameos. Um, it's kooky. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. But you've got Chevy Chase, Carly Simon, John Candy, Danny DeVito, Jeffrey Tambor. Peter Falk. See, the thing is, like, this was ubiquitous. Earlier on the MacGuffin Report, we did the Happy Birthday Batman episode, and Walter and I tried to edumacate you about the Keaton Batman in uh, 1989-1990. And for that movie, the print soundtrack, the logo was everywhere, okay? For Ghostbusters, same, right? And, and, like, this was right about the time when MTV was finally really nationwide. And everybody, pretty much except for those of us living out in the sticks, could get cable. And so MTV was huge. And so videos were huge. We had, and this video, it was like, oh, my God, everybody's in it. You know, the guy from Cheers is in it. And so this was on so-called heavy rotation on MTV for way longer than that, three weeks, I'm sure. This song was everywhere. At the end of this year, people were sick of that song. (laughs) 
Wow, it got played. It got played on MTV. It got played on the radio. It was massive. And I still see, in terms of fandom, I still see people of my generation and the generation younger than me wearing, like, Ghostbuster patches. Oh, well, the icon was so great. Yeah. I don't want to say that was in the day when uh, those things mattered. But again, Ghostbusters was an original product. And that shouldn't be as weird as it is. But in our day, everything's a reboot. It's not an exaggeration to say that. Yeah. I had looked up to see if Ghostbusters was like a comic book before Mm -mm. or something. And I was like, no, there's no original source material. This is the original source material. There was this weird, I think, 50s movie or 40s movie, black and white film, broad comedy film, which might have been called the Ghostbusters or set it in the movie or something like that. But other than that, I mean, I mean, really, like most of this, the car, the logo, the song, uh, the concept, you know, the special effects, of course. And that was another thing I might as well, since we're going off on this tangent, I wanted to say is that I caught this one most recently on a 1080 pixel version and wow really looks great and especially it sounds great there's a mm-hmm. scene where he turns on the pack for the first time in the elevator oh yeah and, yeah yeah and then they just move over it sounds amazing you could it goes and egon like just scoots ever so slightly away both of them like both of they them just kind of sidle easily. over in the, as far away as they could get in the elevator. <laughs> that I love that moment. I and I love when they're facing um, the final boss level, kind of, and they're like, none of us image, like none of us imagined anything when you know they're they're being told to choose their destructor. Right. And Bill Murray stops and he realizes he hasn't asked Ray, yeah. or Ray's character, and he looks over at Dan Aykroyd slowly. That comedic timing. You know, I can, I can think of a couple movies. Like I feel like you had you had some good throwaway lines in movies like Guardians of the Galaxy where they oh, yeah, get, yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't take themselves too seriously. But again, you know, it depends on the writer. You have to or Lego Batman, mm-hmm. the Lego movie in general. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, uh Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse to me is on a whole other level. Actually, when I was writing this up today, I was thinking about Guardians of the Galaxy. And I was thinking about how, because again, we took we took our daughters to go see that, and they were still pretty young when they saw that, and they just thought it was a great, fun movie. It was like seeing a Ghostbusters again. It was like seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark again. Yeah, yeah, very same tonally. All right, and then my third fun fact is that before Ghostbusters, especially if you look on IMDb, Bill Murray has Caddyshack, Tootsie, and a bunch of other movies in his repertoire. Um, I want so I want to ask you, Oz, what was Bill Murray's career up to this point. Okay, well, lately on this show, again, we're doing quarantine movies. I honestly can't believe we're in the fifth episode, Rachel, with no end in sight. I mean, not to the series, but to the quarantine. (laughs) We're trying to give you several hours, several dozens of hours worth of viewing and uh, discovering some really good runs. I don't know if Jack Nicholson's is ever going to be topped. I think, how many did I give? 30-some-odd? Maybe even 40? Yeah. I don't think he'll ever be topped, but but he's an old guy. Bill Murray still has, I'd say, maybe 10, 15 more years in him. I mean, hell, Al Pacino is, what, 90? He's still doing movies. Yeah, he's got gas in the tank. Bill Murray, a lot like Tom Hanks, who we'll talk about next time, 
it began in the 80s, but really started hitting that critical acclaim gear in the late 2000s and early teens. So let's go through the resume. Here, here's what he looks like from 1980 to 2004. All right. Now, these are just the movies that I've seen, but this is 24 movies in 24 years, so that's at least like 42 hours of viewing for you. All right, here we go. It goes, Where the Buffalo Roam, Caddyshack, Stripes, Tootsie, Ghostbusters, The Razor's Edge, Little Shop of Horrors, Scrooged, Ghostbusters 2. What about Bob, Groundhog Day, Mad Dog in Glory, Ed Wood. Excellent movie, Ed Wood. Oh, I love that movie. I forgot he was in it. Oh, yeah. Holy moly. He was excellent in it, too. Supporting actor. Kingpin, one of the all-time favorites of this show, Space Jam. Yes, Space Jam. <laughs> the Man Who Knew Too Little, Wild Things, Rushmore, an all-time cult mm-hmm. classic. Hamlet. Did you know he played Hamlet? No. Where he was the he was the father of Julia Stiles Ophelia against Ethan Hawke's Hamlet. That was in year 2000. Also in year 2000, he did Charlie's Angels. So really demonstrating a lot of range when you can do Shakespeare and Charlie's Angels in the same year. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, it's Osmosis Jones, an animated film. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, Lost in Translation, which I'll talk about shortly, and The Life Aquatic, which... Rachel will talk about after that. So that's a really nice little run right there. Not all of these movies are awesome. Some of them aren't very good at all, like Charlie's Angels. Some of these movies are quite dated, like Stripes, which I recently watched again, and Tootsie. Um, very, very 80s. There's some troglodyte humor in there. Let's just put it that way. And here's a very unpopular take. In my opinion, Groundhog Day is one of the most overrated movies of all time. I mean, seriously, I saw one of these listicles that had this film as Bill Murray's best film. It's like, come on now. Okay. He tries his hardest, but look, this film is a total high concept film with a plot that makes no sense, completely forgettable dialogue and Andy McDowell. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This film is not nearly as good as everybody thinks it is. And everybody who thinks it's Bill Murray's best film, watch it. Watch it. Watch it as part of this list I just gave you. You will not be impressed. Why is it so critically acclaimed? I don't know. Well, I mean, here's the thing. People, when when people tell me personally, Groundhog Day, oh yeah, that's a great film. I'm like, oh yeah, what's it about? Well, it's this thing where like he goes and he repeats the same day over and over. See, it's like people dig the high concept, and there is some clever stuff in this film, like the cutbacks. You know, uh, like the way they introduce it at the beginning, that he's waking up on the same day. Stuff like that is clever, right? But it gets really old really fast. Yeah, I'd rather talk about Memento. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing, right? That's It's Memento, except done badly. <laughs> now, you figure in even the below-average movies in this run of 24, but Bill Murray always makes it better. He always makes it watchable. And some of those movies are dogs, and he still makes them watchable. (laughs) So great way to marathon movies. Just watch Bill Murray movies. Uh, You might be sick of them by the end of it, but you'll you'll have seen some good movies on the way. And you'll end strongly. One of those films you'll end with is Lost in Translation. Bill Murray plays Bob Harris, possibly himself, a pretty big-deal American actor who's tasked with shooting a whiskey commercial in Japan. While he's in Japan for about, I don't know, five days, six days? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Do you know? Can you tell how many days? 
Uh, no, I don't remember. Right. Exactly. Good. Okay, so while he's in Japan for X days, our hero Bob gets very bored and ultimately meets 22-year-old Charlotte, played by then 19-year-old Scarlett Johansson. Um, was was your ageometer on uh, Red Alert during this movie? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I bet it was. But don't worry about it, because the relationship is probably not as sordid as you believe it is. Anyway... Bob and Charlotte, they hang out, they hang out, they go to some parties, they go to some clubs, whatnot, and neither of them ever really seems 100% aware of what's going on around them. And hopefully, neither does the audience, because I think that's intentional. You know, people talk about going to the movies as a form of escape. Okay, fair enough. But there are very few movies that actually really immerse you into that world of the characters. You talked about Memento before. To me, that's the other great example of this. The reason why Memento is structured the way it is, is so that, like the character, you have no memory of prior events. Mm -hmm. That's why it's run like that. That's the only way you can simulate what he feels. Now, having lived in a foreign culture, I can say that the experience you have in that place is a lot like what the characters are doing in this movie. If you feel confused, if you feel out of place, if you're never really sure what's going on, that's the way you're supposed to feel. Because that's the way it is. Like, for example, okay, in this movie, the Japanese is never translated with subtitles, right? There's never any subtitles. If there is translation, it's being done with a translator who is, hmm, let's say... Questionable. Fair, yeah, questionably competent, right? I actually have questionably in my notes here. Good call, Rachel. <laughs> uh, so you're never really sure what's being said. And guess what? Neither is Bob. Neither is Charlotte. You're an American in Japan, right? You're never quite there. On top of this, you never really know what time of day it is. Most of the time, Bob is on the set or he's in the hotel or he's in a club. There's no clocks. And that is approximating the, the, the dose of jet lag that he has, right? Things just aren't quite right. Like time is irrelevant for the life that he's leading and for this movie. It's just... Bam. And, and of course, this is Japan, right? So what's up with that TV show he goes on? Does anybody really understand what's going on there except for Japanese folks who speak Japanese? I mean, what's going on there, right? And so all in all, in terms of creating an atmosphere, in terms of direction, you, this is impressive stuff overall. And, and Bill Murray and... Scarlett Johansson's really first star role really like accentuate this. They're both brilliant in this film. Um, you can really see why this film was nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture, which it lost to some other movie. Some other movie that we might have mentioned in a previous podcast being Return of the King. Yeah, I've heard of that movie. Okay, so... You haven't seen Lost in Translation recently, and you're biased because of Lord of the Rings, but what were your impressions of this film? I was only biased during award season. I got right. over it. You know, once we, we once we got our little gold man, I was able to go and watch it. It was fine. I thought it was a beautifully made film, though. I'm, I'm glad I did go back and watch it. Um, I wasn't as Oscar crazy back then. I I almost got into the Oscars because of Lord of the Rings, really. Yeah. Um, it was like that was why I got into comic-con and 
cons in general because of Lord of the Rings. Um, I got into nerddom because of Lord of the Rings. I watched Lost in Translation because of Lord of the Rings. Hey, great. So you can thank them for that. Um, yeah, beautifully made film. I, I picked up on what you just mentioned about how immersive Sofia Coppola made the film. It's purposeful that you don't know what time it is almost ever. They're always indoors. With the lighting, it's hard to tell. You don't really go outside until the very end, really, where there's da- any any sort of daylight. I thought it was thoughtfully... And then he sees what he's missing. Exactly. That's what that last scene is about. It's just like, oh my god, I'm leaving all this behind. And I think he kind of realizes, and again, this is testament to Bill Murray, is that you can look at those glances that he's giving out the window and interpret mm-hmm. it, right, and see if you can guess mm-hmm. it. <laughs> but I am guessing that he's not coming back. Not to that Japan, anyway. No, he told that girl, and you know, conventionally speaking, oh yeah, he's going to come back. He's going to crisscross the world twice again, you know, come back to her. He's going to give up everything. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. No, he won't. And that's the thing. That The ickiness of the relationship, that's part of not knowing what to do, right? Because this also happens when you are in that foreign culture, you tend to glom on to people from your culture right at least people who can speak your language. people you can understand and communicate with yes right exactly exactly and uh you you associate with your people right for example bill murray the jazz singer mm-hmm. right you associate with people who you wouldn't normally associate with mm-hmm. and when your options are so limited and you're feeling lonely and stuff like that you may hook up or almost hook up with people who you would never hook up with in another situation Remember what Richard Curtis films teach us, right? Timing. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's going back. And, and all that icky relationship stuff, it's not a real relationship. Exactly. That's why I thought I thought this film was a, I have it in my notes as, a bittersweet conversation about loneliness. Not just loneliness among other people or loneliness by yourself, but just loneliness in general. Just feeling that sense of loneliness and ennui that you can feel in the world when you don't have a direction or time doesn't really matter to you as Bill Murray is a huge star and doesn't really have – there's not a time that he has to go to work or a time that he has to go to bed. And on top of all of that, he's jet lagged. It doesn't matter if he knows because he's got the five people that are going to take him exactly. where he goes. Right? His life is not really his. <laughs> right, right. At least for this – time when he's in this bizarre place where he doesn't understand what's going on it's great it's like a nether space Mm -hmm. okay so that's awesome that's a great summation of that movie rachel did for you is the movie that you want to talk about life aquatic with steve zizu is this as heavy it could be i i wouldn't say it's as heavy um it's got its heavy moments a good friend of mine pauline mentioned that most of anderson's early work is like his therapy. Wow. It's funny, if you've seen this, if you've seen Royal Tenenbaums, if you've seen Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, there's little hints here and there of where, hints here and there of what Anderson's life might have been like growing up. Mm. And there's some clear therapy going on here. Life Aquatic, if you don't know about it or haven't seen it, is a 2004 film directed by Wes Anderson and written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach, if you didn't know that. It stars Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, also with Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Kate Blanchett, and our first sighting of Matthew Gray Goobler, who is a regular on uh, that TV show, Criminal Minds. There's a, he has a huge following now. 
Got a huge nerd girl following, which I think is adorable. Yay for the nerds. <laughs> he plays intern number one. This, this was his first film credit, and he was actually Wes Anderson's intern at the time. Hmm. So that's how he got on the movie. Go be somebody's intern, guys. And you're playing intern in the so movie. So the plot is, with a plan to exact revenge on a mythical shark that killed his partner, oceanographer Steve Zissou, Bill Murray, rallies a crew that includes his estranged wife, a journalist, and a man who may or may not be his son. So this movie, in all of its topsy-turvy ways, is incredibly rewatchable for me. It was maybe the third or fourth Wes Anderson film that I got into. I went on a huge Wes Anderson streak when I was in college, when I was introduced to it by one of uh, my college roommates at the time who was collecting all of the Criterion collection. And I was like, what is this weird Wes Anderson thing? She's like, oh, my gosh, you have to you have to see it any of them. They're the best. And I fell in love with this, almost like this genre. He creates his own. This is one of those directors we were talking about, like Quentin Tarantino, where he leaves his thumbprint. Uh, And you can tell it's a Wes Anderson movie. And people will try to replicate him as well. I have it in my notes here. I wrote (laughs) in summing up, I was trying to describe Again, you're reading my mind, this genre, this subgenre that is familiar unto Anderson and Anderson alone. I describe his genre as oddly weird yet oddly human. Yes. I'm going to go with that. It's it's kind of like science nonfiction. <laughs> Non-magical realism. Yeah. Like that. Something like that. Something Because it's just on the edge of, whoa, Twilight Zone. You know, it's that. Wallace and Gromit with serious themes. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's very it's very it's very symmetrical it's very twee it's very pink it's very uh, charming and uh, fanciful but it's very real and the humor and the emotions are very uh, my friend described it as muted almost so it's it's its own concoction of something else there's lots of humor and dark humor sprinkled within the dialogue if you're listening the films are literally colorful. If you haven't seen any Wes Anderson film, it's hard to tell you where to start. I personally started with Royal Tenenbaums and then moved on from there to it might actually it might have been Life Aquatic and then Darjeeling Limited and Moonrise Kingdom came out and uh, watched Bottle Rocket and then Rushmore, I think. And Fantastic Mr. Fox also came out around then. And then most recently, Grand Budapest Hotel and Isle of Dogs. But all of these are very... Wes Anderson and very fanciful in their own ways. And most of them have Bill Murray. And most of them have Bill Murray. If you do the Bill Murray duck marathon, then you'll get five or six. Exactly. I would say Rushmore is a can't miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a five star out of five kind of thing. Anybody can watch it. That that's a good start uh, for both for both Bill Murray and. Um, Wes Anderson, if if you want to. Uh, I was this for me. This movie, I just watched it. This is and this was your first time watching it too. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. This was like this weird blind spot. Had you heard of it? No, I might have on the periphery, yeah. but it certainly didn't uh, ring a bell with me. And it's like I love these actors and actresses. I love Angelica Houston. It's a huge star-studded cast. Yeah. Yeah, I love Willem Dafoe. He is so good in this film. And of course, I love Bill Murray and I love Wes Anderson. And everyone loves Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum, right? And and so this this movie, and I went in completely blind. 
I mean, I looked it up because I was like, Life Aquatic? What the hell is this? What is this craziness that Rachel's recommending? Yeah, Life Aquatic. Is this a documentary, right? And uh, sure enough, you know, it's about that. I should have told you it was the sequel to Up. What? Down? <laughs> Down. Two Up. <laughs> Further Up. <laughs> So I was watching this film, and I just kept thinking to myself over and over again, you know, WTF. At first, it looks like this parody of Jacques Cousteau, which is a really strange thing to be parodying in 2004. It is a love letter to Jacques Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, Wes loved these films as a kid. Um, and then you get this weird thing with uh, Owen Wilson, you know, his long lost son, who's a landlubber. He's this total like, I don't know anything about water. Right? And it looks like it's going to be this this slapstick kind of thing. But nope. Then there's this action film stuff where, you know, Steve Zizou becomes the Terminator, you know, and then Jeff Goldblum flits in and out and he's being all Goldblummy and he's talking a lot of trash. And then there's this weird like Moby Dick subplot going on it's just like what the hell is and then you know in the end you know i guess it's just another wes anderson film yeah there's a there's a lot going on in this movie as you mentioned oz um and you can follow all of these subplots and main plots and underplots through the relationship that this character steve has which is very flawed with everybody else in his life and he's doing his best to kind of try to skate through everything with the least friction possible. But that's kind of what got him in trouble in the first place. And you learn by the end of the movie, you have the question, well, did he change? And that's up to the viewer to find out. But I love this film. There's there's a lot in it. It's it's pulling in all sorts of directions, but there's a lot to be thinking about as you're watching it. And it's it's kind of like eating candy. Like, it's just fun to watch. You enjoy it a lot. Um, I wouldn't say, though, it's like eating junk food where you feel bad afterwards, though. I feel great and fanciful and i want to go buy myself a tweed jacket afterwards and a hat i have some fun facts for life aquatic i actually have fun fact submission from a fan from eric i love wes anderson films and my favorite is rushmore the main character max checks out and reads the book diving for sunken treasure by jacques cousteau which foreshadowed the life aquatic so thanks so much for sending that in eric we really appreciate it A couple other fun facts that I found along the way. Bill Murray actually had to leave in the middle of shooting um, to collect his Golden Globe for Lost in Translation. Fun little tie-in. At least he got that. At least he got that. I think (laughs) I believe he got a BAFTA as well. Nice. Wow. And as we mentioned before, this film is Wes Anderson's love letter to Jacques Cousteau's old films. So So much so that the ship in the film, the Belafonte, is designed after after Cousteau's Calypso. Another fun fact, the jaguar shark in the film is huge. It's a huge stop motion piece. It's about eight feet in length, and it requires five separate hand cranks to operate to make it look like it's swimming. (laughs) Come a long way from Jaws. Oh, man, I do have one more, actually. Bill Murray actually got his uh, diving certificate after this movie because he spent, I think it's the 40 hours... You have to spend underwater with your diving equipment to get certified. He didn't get his toque certificate. What's that? Somebody should teach him how to wear the toque. That's the hat that he's wearing all the time. Oh, Jacques Cousteau's yeah. hat? Somebody's got to teach that him. That signature red. I have one of those. Not like a not like a movie, you know, licensed one, but I have one. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Canadians would be ashamed. Oh, how, how are you supposed to wear it? Well, them? it shouldn't be all like, he wears it so it's all bunched up at the top. 
you know. He's, oh, so he looks like a yeah, you kind of like it's supposed to be pulled That's... down over your ears, right? I think okay, so Wes Anderson eventually got that right in Moonrise right. Kingdom. Then. Right, exactly. <laughs> Some a Canadian, an angry Canadian. Are those two words go in the same sentence? Angry Canadian. And that Canadian wrote a letter to Wes Anderson, and he was like, "All right, well, we'll give you this here. Film set somewhere on the border of Canada." But yeah, that's that's Life Aquatic. That is one of my favorite Bill Murray movies. Who are you gonna call? <laughs> Okay, that's a wrap. This has been the MacGuffin Report, Quarantine Viewing Edition. And hey, you're at home, you're online, check us out, give us a shout at Twitter, at The MacGuffin Pod. On Facebook, our page is The MacGuffin Report. I'm Oz Davis, and for my co-host, Rachel Wong, we're saying stay safe, stay inside, and watch some good old movies. Bye.